start um, on this morning's lessons. We are now in chapter 6. We've got just two more lessons to go. We're at the end of part 2 for Hebrews. It's amazing, isn't it? And um, we have so much to cover. We are going to be covering chapter 8, 9, and 10. We are going to do paragraph titles for each of those three chapters so that we see the author's flow of thought, which... Um, I feel like is the most important part of what we need to accomplish in order to keep moving forward. For one thing, we are very quickly approaching um, the end of chapter 10 where, again, we hit another difficult passage for people. And um, I feel like, although I feel confident that in chapter 6 we handled it well and accurately, um, there is always conflict. There's going to be some people who will not agree with that interpretation. Um, my number one rule that I adhere to as a precept teacher and as a student of God's word is that we don't violate the known doctrines in whatever interpretation we come up with. So even if you come up with a different interpretation, you cannot violate the most sacred of our pillars of faith one of which for this book is going to be the assurance of salvation. Um, a covenant is cut. Once it is cut, once you enter into faith with, with God, into relationship with God, he gives you his spirit in this new covenant and he seals you. And he seals you until the day of redemption. That's very declarative. And so I stand on the absolute doctrinal truth that you once you are saved you cannot lose that salvation and so however you interpret these difficult passages that are uh, presented in the book of Hebrews in chapter 6 and in chapter 10 how however you decide to look at those and interpret them as long as you don't violate your known doctrines I'm okay with even if you wrestle around with it and play I personally feel like I, I handled the text well trying not to violate any of the points you know including the to me what is a very clear definitive um, identifying markers in those couple of verses in in the middle there of chapter six where he calls them those who have been enlightened and those who have received the spirit and so forth I think that's a believer absolutely and therefore I believe then what follows on is talking about discipline and not eternal destruction but if you choose to find it in any other manner that's that's your of course your prerogative I'm not here to dictate to you how you interpret things um, I just say that you need to make sure that you try to exercise all of the inductive processes and try to be honest in trying to come to a some kind of a, an understanding of them now when we hit chapter 10 again we are going to have to um, make some of those same applications of all those points. And we have to look at that specific message there. As we progress through this, when we hit chapter 10, we have to say, well, now in chapter 10, who is he addressing and what is the consequence? So for that reason, because we're approaching now this second difficult passage, this flow of thought is going to, I think, be essential. In part, as being one of the pieces of the inductive processes that you have to, you know, kind of nail down real securely so that you see exactly what his flow of thought is and what he's saying to, to this particular audience. So that's my agenda this morning. We're going to stay focused on um, the flow of thought and we're going to do it 
by paragraph titling, okay? Now, in order to do that, before you can go in and title your paragraphs, you have to title your chapters, right? So how do we go about doing that? Well, the process is the same every single time. You begin by observing the chapter on the whole um, with the contextual understanding of the bigger picture of the book on the whole. And then you look to see what are your subjects that are brought up by marking what? Keywords. And once you see your keywords, then you're able to develop uh, lists that are made from the keywords that you identify. And once you begin to make your list, then you begin to see exactly which of those keywords that you marked actually are the most significant ones. Sometimes you mark a keyword, and you find out after you make a list on it, it was either a sub-point to something more significant or that it wasn't even that important at all. It was just kind of a minor point. I mean, we get sometimes caught up, particularly when you hit in Chapter 9, we start looking at um, the, the Ark uh, of the Covenant, and we look at the, there's a table of showbread, and there's a mercy seat. And, I, and for me, I immediately went, ooh, mercy seat. Mark that <laughs> word, right? Well, how, how important is the word mercy seat in Chapter 9? It's just one thing that's mentioned among the many. So although it's a wow in our hearts, it's not a big wow in the chapter. You know that once you make a list on it, because there's not much to make a list on, right? So that's how you objectively come to find out what is most significantly being said in any chapter. Isn't that a cool process, though? It's a great checks and balances in helping you to stay objective and stay focused on the big points. What is major will present itself as major once you start to make your list on it. And if you make a list and it's like three points, and you make another list on another word and it's 18 points, which one is the more important subject? the one with 18 points. <laughs> exactly. So that's how the process works. So this morning we're going to do that. So we're going to go, but we're going to back up. We're going to do a quick review in chapter eight, and it's a pretty simple chapter. But uh, let's start by first reminding ourselves what is the major theme of, of uh, Hebrews on the whole, the whole book. Boy, you guys have got that one down. Now, Jesus is better than, and he is better than what? What is the other major thing that's going on in this book? What is the comparison in this book? The old covenant and the new covenant. So there's the, con there's the challenge. He's, he's presenting what is new in Christ Jesus is better than what was old in that old covenant of the law. So we're going to see constantly the law and the covenant, the law and the covenant, the law and the new covenant, and these are going to be a constant um, uh, conflict, basically, or contrasting. And so when you look at the book on the whole, you see then Jesus is better than. Wh um, what do you see in chapter 8? When you go into chapter 8, the first thing we want to do then is look in chapter 8 again and look at what are our uh, key words, right? To find the major subject. So what are the key words that you came up with for chapter 8? Open your observation worksheet and just use it as a, as a, uh, if any of you have your uh, Hebrews at a glance chart handy, that would be really helpful too to just lay out before you. I don't know how many of you 
utilize this, and sometimes I forget to mention it. I just use mine so habitually that I forget to mention it to you all. If you're not keeping this at-a-glance chart up to date, and if you're not kind of keeping it laid before you even when you're doing your homework, this is, this is an important tool because what this is going to do is constantly remind you of kind of the flow or the, prog the progression of this author's thinking. Okay, so this little tool is like, when I'm done at the end of every one of my um, Bible studies, whatever I'm doing, I take my observation, or, or my um, at-a-glance chart, I make a copy of it, and I put it in my Bible, and I carry it with me, because anytime then, if I'm in a Sunday school class or listening to a sermon, I, if, if my pastor says, now, we're going to be covering Hebrews this week, or for this month, or whatever, I can pull out my at-a-glance chart and, and just kind of lay it open, and as he's preaching, I can use this to keep my boundaries good. So these are super awesome little tools for yourself, you know, not just for Bible study time, but keep that available and out before you, if you would, this morning. That'll help you, I think. So tell me, what did you see for key words in chapter 8? Covenant. The, f the most important one is covenant comes up in... Um, in chapter 8, I'm going to put on here chapter 8, just so that you have that. Chapter 8 keywords. Okay, so covenant comes up. Um, when you did uh, 9 and 10, did you happen to notice that covenant is continues to be a keyword in each one of those chapters? Did you all notice that? So I'm just going to go ahead and fill this in here for us. Chapter 9 keyword. And I'm going to put covenant up here again. And what we're going to see then by doing this is that we have a consistent major key word in all three chapters. Now, what does that tell us? <laughs> it seems, it, it shows that it's important. It show, and what else does it show us? Well, it, do, it is a key work in the, in the whole book. That it, is, it is sort of alluded to once you know what a covenant is and you know what the subject matter is, you c could go back in and see covenant everywhere. But most specifically, starting in chapter 8, the word covenant begins to be used, and you see it again in chapter 9, and you see it again in chapter 10. So when you're working in at-a-glance chart, what do you call that when you hit a section there you go. Say it again, Celeste. There you go. <laughs> That's what I wanted. A little help from my brother. <laughs> it is called a segment division. So what we can now see then by doing this, covenant, 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 chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, all three of them have the word covenant in it. What we now know is we have hit a segment division about the subject of covenant. Now there's an overriding message too, though, that we have seen about Jesus. What has been the subject prior to this? What segment division did we hit before this? The high priesthood, that he is the high priest. Now, what's interesting is once you hit chapter 8, 9, and 10, you still see the word high priest, don't you? So we can actually put high priest as another one of our key words. And we can carry it through again.
But now what has happened is the emphasis is he is still, it's the subject of his high priesthood is still there, but now it's focusing that he's a high priest of a certain covenant that's distinctive, that it becomes the major segment division. So it's really cool. You have high, the, the high priest has come up earlier in, let's see, where did it begin? The high priest starts in chapter 4. So chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7 was all about his high priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. That's right. So in those four chapters, the focus was all about how he qualified to be that great high priest because according to his human uh, qualifications, did he qualify to be a high priest? No. So this author has to take these very Hebrew-minded people through the... Uh, understanding of how God designated him and made him to be a high priest that, that by the way, not only qualified him, but, but um, trumped the order of the Aaronic priesthood in its uh, qualification, that it's a greater high priesthood than the, the Aaronic priesthood is, right? So we went through in those four chapters and looked at how he is a high priest, he's, he's been designated that, he's, and, he, and he's, um, um, what is the right <laughs> phrasing on this, but that he is, as the Melchizedek line, it is greater than the Aaronic priesthood. And therefore, they can put the Aaronic priesthood behind and replace Jesus in that place and that he is greater than, than the, old, the other priesthood that they had under the old system, the law, right? All right, so now that we are at that place, we can go back to chapter 8 and continue with some more key words there. What do we see in particular chapter 8? Chapter 8 is kind of an interesting chapter because it's really, the majority of it is a quote, <laughs> Right? Did you notice that? For those of you who do like I have been doing, you know, you, you mark chapter 5, you, and then you mark chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. See how I've highlighted them with this baby blue color, this gray blue color? And again on the back, the majority of the information in chapter 8 is all one great big Old Testament quote. Correct? All right, so with that said, what you know then is in the very little pieces that you have left in that chapter is where you're going to pull your major uh, author's point because all the rest of it that's highlighted in that baby blue, which is a quote, is, is given for the purpose of supporting what he said. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay, so tabernacle, good one. So the word tabernacle is in chapter 8, and the contrast is that there is a true one and a copy. Okay? So we have a tabernacle that's addressed. Again, it's, it's comparing then the old system with the new covenant. Under the old covenant, they had a they had a tabernacle. In the New Covenant, we have a tabernacle, right? And in the, the New Covenant, we have a better tabernacle, correct? Okay. Um, when, he, when we see the word high priest in chapter 8 mentioned, there's also a synonym that's introduced to us in chapter 8, verse 2. And it c calls the, the high priest what? 
a minister. It's very interesting because that word is going to come up again in several points. And I think that it actually becomes a, a significant kind of point because in it, the quality of the work of it actually becomes more heightened than the, uh, the object of a, hum a human person. Rather than just being a vessel who is a high priest, he now becomes the active vessel of it, right? So from the word simply, the word high priest, seems to have slight different emphasis when you call him the minister of something. So you might want to put, along with high priest, you might want to put minister as one of your key words in that chapter 8 because it's going to come up uh, over and over. And since we have so very little to work with as far as uh, direct information that he's given to us that are not the quotes, you're going to have to find a major subject then in chapter 8 that is found in verses 1 to th the first part of 5, and then in then verse 13, basically. That's about all. And you have verse 6 and 7, a little bit in 6 and 7 in the middle. So tell me what else do you see in there. Concerning the old and the new, is there any other key words that you see? Better than. The word better than, which is your, your book major theme. Okay. Yes, the copy versus the true concerning the tabernacle. So those are identifying qualities concerning the word tabernacle. Jesus. Obviously, Jesus, who is, or Christ, who is. All right. Concerning this uh, tabernacle, are there any qualifying points concerning it that he any points that he makes about it that you think are really significant tell me some things that he's telling us about this uh this tabernacle okay there all right there's one in heaven versus the one that's been pitched by man which is of course upon the earth okay because so in verse four for if now he were on earth Right, he talks about, so there's the one on earth, and in verse 5, the copy and the shadow. All right, what else do we learn about it? Are there any other important points about the, what about the old covenant? We know the new one is the one that is being emphasized. Concerning the old one, are there any important points that he gives to us that are, that are significant concerning this old one? It becomes obsolete. That's exactly right. Look in verse 13. He says, now, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Okay, because whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to what? Disappear. So has he now given us a really important clue about the comparison between the two, that the new is better, and, then the, old, and the old is now obsolete and is about to what? Disappear. Disappear. Okay, so that kind of gives us boundaries about what's going on with uh, chapter 8. So now let's go in and try to decide then what do we think the major point is in chapter 8. So with these as our key words, we know that Jesus has become something that's better than. That's what we've, all of our titles have been Jesus is better than, better than, better than. That's how we've been titled them. So in this case, we can start our titling with the word Jesus. Concerning Jesus, what do we know about him in chapter 8? Jesus, what? 
Okay, he's, he's a mediator of a better covenant. That's good. So the subject of a better covenant has now been addressed, and we've got that. And, and he, as a mediator of a better covenant, how, how might we slip in the priesthood on this? Since we also know the priesthood has maintained its uh, important subject as far as the flow of thought in here. The mediator quality emphasizes the covenant itself, but what about the, min, the, um, the priesthood quality? Is it? Pardon? Right. Yes, and he is at the right hand of the throne. But what is he doing in this particular chapter 8? How is Jesus seen as working? What is his, what is his, uh, um, he's the high priest. There you go. He has obtained a more excellent ministry of a better what? covenant. So in doing it that way, what we do is we maintain both subjects by in that particular title. And I'm not saying it's the only way to title it. I'm just saying to you that if you want to try to bring forward the subject of his, of his priesthood into this chapter, it be, I think it would behoove us to, to, to maintain that continuity, that he is a better high priest, or he's a better, in this case, a better, he's a, a minister of a better high covenant, or of a new covenant. Jesus has a more excellent ministry over a better covenant, okay? And that would maintain for us both things. Do you think that would be helpful to you as far as maintaining the quality of those two points, the ministry, the high priesthood? Because that's a major subject, right? Have we lost that major subject? When you look at your keywords in chapter 8, how many times is minister and priest used? A bunch, right? I mean, for the little tiny bit of verses, we've got high priest, a minister, high priest, high priest, a priest, ministry. So it's like one, two, three, four, five, six times in the little tiny bits of verses that we have to work with in there that are not quotes from the Old Testament, right? So if, you're, if it's mentioned six times, to me, the word minister or high priest still needs to be maintained in your title. Because if you're going to title anything with integrity, you want to say, what does the author seem to emphasize the most? Not what do I tend to have a, you know, it, it's so easy for us to just kind of get tunnel vision on something that that strikes us as interesting or strikes us as significant but when you use the tools that inductive bible study gives to you it it says to you look to see what's repeated the most that's going to give you the author's most uh, um, important subject that he's addressing at that moment and use those words in your titling that's just the, how the process is. So in this case, we, we have the, the new covenant is brought up, and we, and we see it particularly specifically mentioned in, in chapter uh, 8, verse 6. But he says, covenant, a better covenant in 6, enacted on better promises, and those better promises con are concerning the covenants. You might want to even mark the word promises there in the same way as you mark covenant. I did. Um, and he said, for if that first covenant have been faultless, then there would have been no occasion sought for a second. A second what? Covenant. covenant. So you mark that a second as a covenant. So you see starting in verse 6, covenant, 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 right? It's all over the place. So you see the bulk of it is covenant, but the word priest still maintains a high measure of usages. So you want to get both of those, those words in your title. 
Did I explain that very well? Oh, good. <laughs> okay. So Jesus, uh, we're going to put on here, has a, let's see, he has a more excellent ministry. I'm using words right from the text as much as I can. And then I'm going to put it here, of a better covenant. I wish it weren't such a long title, <laughs> but it is. Every now and then they are, and it's hard to scrunch it down any smaller than that. But in this case, he has a more excellent ministry of a better covenant. And that encompasses now both of your major keywords. Are you seeing how I did that? And that's verse 6. <laughs> okay, good job. All right. So you can pick a, a verse then that, that gives you a, um, a verse. You, what you want to do then is look for a verse that basically to, tries to cover both of your points in one place, if possible. It isn't always possible to do, but often it is. So Mar uh, Margaret is absolutely correct in verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Isn't that a great verse for that particular title? Okay, so now we have a title, chapter 8. Now we're ready to look at our paragraphs. Now paragraphs are titled very much in the same way in that what you do is you say, okay, now I know what my title is. Now I want to say in the first paragraph, how does the author address that particular subject that he has just brought up? So how in chapter uh, 1, verses 1 to 5, how does he answer or address explaining that he has a more excellent ministry of a better covenant. So what's going on in chapter 1 through 5, or verses 1 through 5, rather, of chapter 8? What's the major thing going on there? There's a true, okay, so there's some contrasts that are absolute, absolutely given. The true tabernacle in verse 2, right? And it's, con and it's, and by the way, that true tabernacle is the pattern by which they made the one for the earthly, right? Yeah. And then it's contracted, uh, contrasted then in verse 5 of that which is a copy and a shadow, right? It, where is the location of the true one? In heaven. And it's stated twice, by the way, if you didn't notice that, in verse 1 and again in verse 5. And then it, in, um, where is the one located that is the, um, copy on earth. So it makes it pretty clear, doesn't it? That it's saying that the one that's on earth is a copy. Isn't that an amazing thought, you guys? Really think about that. We have in this written word that God gave to us by divine inspiration and through, of course, all the other many other books in the Bible, we have an, a concept of what is in the heavenly throne room of God. Isn't that cool? I think that's pretty cool. It's going to be like when you walk in, you're going to go, oh, I, I knew that'd be right there. <laughs> I think it needs to move two inches. No, it's perfect. Never mind. <laughs> right? It's going to be awesome. Okay. So, yes. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's an interesting 
that's kind of going, that's analytical thinking. I like that. That's going to that next, well, it is, and it's, it's kind of cool because what happens is, is once you kind of analyze everything and you get your concrete points down in your mind, then you're able to go to that next level of saying, so if this is true about the earthly, then what does that tell us about the heavenly? And that is a good point, Craig. I like that. Okay, so now what, is, what does he tell us then in 1 to 5 about that tabernacle concerning Jesus having a more excellent ministry over a better covenant? How is his ministry better? What is, it, and what is the comparison to, by the way? The earthly ministry of the earthly priests in the earthly tabernacle, right? So if you're comparing the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle, you're comparing the, the priesthood of the, of the covenant of the law, you're comparing it to what Jesus does. What do we see that's better? How is his a better one? Because his is what? It's the true one. So in this particular one, you can say, well, Christ is, is where? When, when the priest of the earthly tabernacle enters into his, it's the earthly one, right? But when Jesus entered into his tabernacle, where did he enter? Into the true one in the heavens. That's awesome. So one to five is telling us that Christ is in that heavenly one. That's where he has entered. There's another quality, too, by the way, about when he enters into that heavenly tabernacle, what else does it tell us about him? Once he's there, what? And it's quite significant from the earthly tab, uh, priest. He sits down. Why is that an important thing? And why would these Hebrew-minded men and women, when they heard this, go, whoa, It's finished work. And these priests, did they ever, did the, in the earthly tabernacle, did a priest ever sit down? Were there any chairs in the, in the which is really cool. The work was never done. That's it. It was never, ever done. And I think it's really cool to think that one significant article of furniture that's different is that in the heavenly one, there are thrones. One upon which God himself sits continually and the other upon which now Jesus sits. And, it, and in the, the fact that this author makes the point to say he, he is not only in a better tabernacle because he's in the true one, but he entered into that tabernacle and when he completed his work, he sat down. So t let's title it, then Christ is what? It, he had a more excellent ministry because Christ has what? Uh, I don't want to use the word finish, but he is, because we want to use what's stated in here. What does it tell us? In verse 1, he has what? Has taken his seat. Christ has taken his seat. In what? Yes. And he stayed there too, yeah. Well, the idea that he stayed there, because, and the reason he's able to stay there is because now what? The work is done. Okay, so, he, and he's taken his seat in which tabernacle? The true tabernacle. Okay, so now you tell me, verses 1 to 5, what we have titled that, does that address showing us how Jesus has a more excellent ministry of a better covenant? Does it? Yes, yeah, so that's where you're going with every single one of these paragraphs is you're trying to say, how does this 
section, this paragraph, address or, or accomplish to explain in some way or better, il, or better develop your understanding about that title that Jesus has a more excellent ministry over a better covenant. So in the first five verses, Christ has taken his seat in the true tabernacle. That's how it's better. Okay? All right, now we're going to go to the next section. We're going to look at uh, 6 to 12. Now, this covers almost the whole chapter now because what we hit here is a quote, another little piece, just a small one, 6 and 7, that gives us some information he's giving us, and then yet another quote. So the quote um, in verse uh, 5 that came before it, which is at the close of this, did you see what, what 5 does? Five quotes in Old Testament uh, scripture where it says that for God, um, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. That supports the information that he gave in 1 to 5, that the one that was on the earth was to signify or or be an example of or be a copy of or a shadow of that which was in the heavenly and therefore do it exactly as I tell you, right? We looked at that in our homework this week, right? When we went back and we looked in Exodus, we did some reading. I'll bet pretty much all of us did a whole lot more reading than what Kay even gave to us because you can't hardly stop there, can you? It's pretty hard. Unless you're only following your, uh, your worksheets that were handed out to you, but if you opened your Bible to do the reading on that, it's it's just too tempting to keep moving. <laughs> okay, so now starting in 6, he's going to now make, so he makes a statement in verses 1 through 5, the most of 5, and he follows it with a quote, right? Now we hit 6 and 7, he's going to give more information, and he's going to follow it with a quote. And the quote starts in verse 8 and goes all the way to verse 12. So what we're going to be actually looking at here in order to try to title our next paragraph is just those two verses, 6 and 7. Are you, are you following me? So if you've been doing like I've suggested, and that is to highlight in some way to, to set off your quotes, you won't get tangled up in your quotes, okay? It'll help you to see where is your, the author, author's major point that he's making, and he's going to give it to you in 6 and 7. Okay, so what does he tell us in 6 and 7? There we go. It's <laughs> pretty much simple on this one because it's such a simple uh, chapter. He's mediator of a better covenant. Okay. So how is, he, how is it that he has a more excellent ministry of a better covenant? Well, he is the mediator of it right? The mediator of that better covenant. And he, since as very interesting to me is if I, what I did is I added an extra little point just because I wanted to pull in some of the things that I see in, in eight to, to 12. Is there any one specific thing? If you could just pull out one point, how is it or what is it about the new covenant that makes it so much better than what they were living under, under that old covenant. What is the major contrast that we pointed out when we looked at this last week? Very good, law versus grace. And, and the way that it's stated here, he doesn't say law versus grace. What he says, though, is in verse 8, he says under that old covenant, what did God find the people? 
at fault, that there was fault with the people. Because why in verses, verse 9? What did they not do? They did not continue in it. They didn't, were not able to keep it. And therefore, because they broke it and because it was a conditional covenant, then what must God do? He had to judge them, right? There had to be judgment. And so it was a covenant that was based on two things. Obey and what? Be blessed and disobey. There'll be cursings or consequences, correct? And so he says, I did not care for them. And what he's saying there is then that he would withdraw his blessing and he would allow then uh, the, the consequences of breaking it to come in upon that nation. And that is in fact what did happen. Mm-hmm. That's a real good contrast. I like it that way. Yes. Okay, so once you get then to the very bottom, if you're looking for the major contrast, and I'm looking for what is the better than quality, and um, Daryl did bring it out. Look all the way in verse 12, because there's other information given to us about he's going to put that law in our hearts, and, and it's going to be upon our minds, and I'm going to be their God, and they're going to be my people. But what is, it that, what is the major contrast that he brings out that makes it a better than? No more. It's all based on forgiveness and mercy, right? So you might want to put, I put it on mine just because I wanted to emphasize and remind myself when I look at this, what is his major point? Because I think this is significant for you maintaining the understanding of assurance of salvation. And when you go to interpret or make interpretations in chapter 8, if you lose that particular quality, you, it is very easy for people, as you know, because you can look at commentaries all over the place, there are, and you can listen to sermons all over the place. There are a lot of people who preach out of chapter or out of the book of Hebrews on the whole that you can lose your salvation. And that is absolutely the opposite of what this author is actually teaching. If you, if you stay in context to the whole message, he, o- he overemphasizes, and he does so repeatedly over and over and over, how there is an assurance of their salvation in this new one. And it's so different from the old one, that's what makes it so much better. He has a more excellent ministry of a better covenant. It's a covenant that is not based on if, if you fail in it, God is not going to care for you. But rather, the contrast is he is going to deal with you in this new covenant, totally different. It's going to be based on a forgiveness. He says, I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So mediator of a better covenant where sins are remembered no more. I just think that's an important thing. You might want to just put that in parentheses for yourself, okay? It doesn't necessarily have to be part of your title, but just, I think, to remind yourself that in that chapter uh, contrast, that that's the point he's making there, okay? So all that quote is given to you, all that multitude of quote is given to you just to show you the contrast of two things, the old versus the new, how much better the new is to the old. Okay, then he gives you a conclusion statement, now verse 13. So there's our last paragraph. Jesus has a more excellent ministry, and because this new one is so much better than the old, for one thing, but what else do we learn in just that one tiny verse? That's right, the old is obsolete and is ready to disappear. 
Isn't that amazing? Okay, flow of thought makes sense. Does that kind of hone it down for you? And did you see how I did it? I wanted to take you through that and just explain every single point so that now when we hit the next two chapters, I hopefully I'm not going to have to go in and, and spend as much time on that. Yes? You have a what? Uh-oh. Thanks a lot. Yeah. I told you there's one in every group. <laughs> Good girl. Absolutely. And in this, okay, so you would have to develop your understanding of what he means by, and he remembers them no more, by going back and looking more fully at what is say, he's saying there. He says, I will be what? merciful so you would have to start with an understanding of the idea of mercy which leads you to grace right so you have to establish in mercy and grace and you could ex which is exactly what Daryl did he jumped right to the conclusion of having done all that in a study and he took not words from the text but he drew from his analytical understanding that what this is talking about this is a covenant it's so much better because it's based on mercy and grace so you can do the obsolete mercy. I'm going to put it up here. Mercy and grace. And I can tell you, it's in, it's in my notes. <laughs> I have it right here, mercy and grace. <laughs> Absolutely, better promises because instead of it being based on your ability to perform or act, it's based on his mercy and grace. That's what it's established in. And then after that, there's an I want to obey and do but that's not what gets you in that's the that's the result of a heartfelt because he's going to have by his spirit placed his laws upon your heart there's going to be an I want to within you now but it is not the keeping of them that gets you into that particular uh, covenant right right Present, yes, past, present, future sins are all, this is a huge uh, study that I wish we had developed it, quite honestly. I feel like so often Christians today still operate under uh, a laws attitude rather than a grace attitude. But, what you, but you remember that Paul had to address it at one point where he says, don't forget though now, this is not a license to continue to sin. You do not sin all the more just because you are now under grace. Right? Okay, Susan. Yes, uh-huh. Okay, I like that. He has made, I like that, the old obsolete. I like that, okay. That's good. Excellent. See, I like refining things. That's so good. <laughs> it does, and she's right, because that now that makes a continuity of flow. Christ has taken his seat in the true. He is the mediator of a better covenant, and he has made the old obsolete. That's very good, Susan. All right, nice. Don't let me forget to write that in my observation worksheet. <laughs> I need to fix my chart. <laughs> okay, super. Now let's move on to 9, okay? Because now we're going to do the same thing in Chapter 9. Let's start with... Keywords. Try not to use up too much space because on this one we've got a lot of titles. We've got a lot of paragraphs. 
Okay, so I might have to move over here to get it to finish it out to the other board. All right, so tell me what we have for keywords. We know covenant is in there, and the high priest also maintains its uh, priority. Tabernacle. Again, the word tabernacle comes up. Uh, exactly. There's the holy place. Holy of holies. Now, I don't know if it's... I want to make sure I bring it up. Um, one of you uh, asked me a question early, uh, yesterday in church about how he seems to, sw to drop the name holy of holies when he's addressing the holy of holies and he just starts calling it the holy place. Did you all notice that? So just know that. Now, so the great thing about marking keywords on observation worksheets is that once you know what he actually means, and you know it by the context, right, by the flow, what you can do then is what I did, I marked the holy place in one, with one kind of a mark, which is I just put a blue box on it. But when the Holy of Holies was marked, I, I, used a, I circled it and colored it in gold. And then every time after that where he's making a reference to the Holy of Holies, even though he calls it just the holy place, I still mark it with the key word of the Holy of Holies. Does that make sense to you now? So that way I keep in the my mind constantly when I hit that when he says the holy place I know he's not talking about the outer tabernacle he's talking about the inner sanctuary where God is and I can do that by having marked it uh-huh And there's also another point that's going to be brought up as we move through the progression here of the chapters. I think it's going to, it's going to present itself to us. But in, once the new covenant was inaugurated and once the new covenant was accomplished through the cross, what happened to that, the veil tore? The veil was rent from top to bottom exposing now the holy place to, to the holy of holies and now the totality of that of that area became one room referred to as the holy place so that might explain why he drops the holy of holies and just calls it the holy place that's another possibility of understanding Mm-hmm, yes, and right, and we haven't talked about that, but that's exactly right. There's, there's also the issue of the article of the, the, the table of incense and, and how that uh, is described as being inside rather than outside, and yet, w again, we have to remember that in context, he's speaking after the completion of all of this, right? When now the whole thing is opened for one thing. But secondarily, he's to, is this author a high priest? No. We don't, we don't believe that this, this author is a high priest. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of questions as he goes along sometimes. He, he makes some statements which makes it clear that he's, 
he's basing it off of basically secondhand information, that he's, things that have been told to him. Not that that makes anything he says incorrect, because this is God-inspired. I believe every single thing that he has said is absolutely correct. What we don't understand is, is all the time is where, what was his thinking. <laughs> well, you know, you have to get into the thinking quality. This is where holding fast to your known doctrines absolutely helps you to at least say, well, I know he can't mean this. So what was he thinking? He had to be talking about, well, in the flow of thought, he's trying to say how one is better than the other, how one's obsolete and one is the true, uh, how much better it is in the new, and it has to do with forgiveness, and in the new covenant, you can't lose your salvation because there's an assurance, and once you're sealed by the Spirit, it's there forever. And I mean, so you have to kind of pull in all your pieces of information and say, so what was he saying, Right? But you can't drop any one of those points of information. So when you're talking about this tabern this the, the inner tabernacle and he's talking about the, the table of incense, since you brought it up, we'll go ahead and ex- try to talk on this a little bit right now. We may not get back to it. Um, the, he says that the table of incense is, is um, in front of the veil, right? Or in the veil, within in the holy. He he's describing the interior part of the holy of holies, and he's speaking about that incense being within the veil. All right. So, what are your thoughts on that? Has anybody done some research and how they justify? We know where the table was. It was actually out on the outside of that veil. Why does this author associate it with the inner holy of holies? Absolutely. Okay, good, good. Did anybody hear that? Anybody else have some thoughts? Did anybody research this? Did anybody else care at all? (laughs) Did you guys just say, oh, I don't care, it's fine? Okay, turn around, Carrie, and speak up. Okay, so that's one good point, and there there are other possible some things we're going to add to that. So keep keep that in mind. Yes. Okay. When the veil was torn, it was torn when Jesus was crucified. That's right. The veil represents Christ's flesh. Yes, it does. And outside of the tabernacle, the showbread. Yes. That I am the bread of life. Mm-hmm. And these were verses we looked at, right, in our homework this week. We looked at a lot of verses where how every article represented in some way Christ, right, which is why it's a picture that God wanted to maintain, and he was very um, uh, careful to make sure that, that they protected every single article. Okay. So, okay, so the, every article represents Christ. Now, what was the what did they do with the incense from the uh, table, the altar? Besides, it's representing prayers. What literally did the the high priest of the old covenant do concerning that altar of incense? How did it relate to the inner part that this author may have therefore put it within the within the the holy of holies? Okay, there's a sprinkling of it with blood. That's true. Okay, he, he would take coals 
from the altar of incense, right? And there was a, spe- a pan that they carried. The, 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 and some people say that he's not actually talking about the altar itself, the table, but he's talking about the pan it, that he would carry. And he would take the coals from that pan and he would carry them within the um, uh, holy of holies, correct? Do you guys remember this part? We talked about this a lot when we did Leviticus. We've talked about it when we've done, um, I think I did it when we did Hebrews the last time. But one of the things that I talked about in the, the books and the research that I did is that the, the high priest, after he had confessed, he had done all his washings, he had done all the, the blood sprinkling on the outer parts and so forth, he would take these, this in and he would enter in backwards into that holy of holies area and he would take that incense and he would lay it before the altar and then he would scoot himself back out again. When he leaves, then he was ready to come back in with the blood to sprinkle the altar, but he never faced the altar. Before he faced the altar, he first had the altar, the incense that was burning, right? And he took it within the, uh, within the Holy of Holies, and he did that for what purpose? There you go. Because the incense altar and the smoke of the incense then was the intercessor between the priest and God. So that when he did go in there to sprinkle and he faced that altar, he would not be consumed by God. He would not be killed, basically. Because why? The smoke represents who? Jesus as our intercessor. So we cannot, can, we, the whole point is, is, is in our relationship with God now, we cannot enter into the Holy of Holies. That veil was always there to separate man and, and God because man who is sinful, until there's a covering for us, we cannot enter into the, into the presence of God and not be consumed because of our sin. Once you have the intercessor in place, I got the most profound picture of this, um, Dawn, when your church did the, our, the uh, tabernacle uh, experience, right? I remember when, when we went there, they had little burning incenses that we could go into. How many of you guys got to go do that? A lot of you? Yeah, a lot of you. And so you got to go pick up your little incense, and you walked into the Holy of Holies. Did that not just give you chills? And as I stood there holding my little incense before I put it on the altar, I could see the smoke just filling it up right before my eyes, and it just impressed upon me so strongly. The purpose for that altar of incense was the intercessory work of Jesus Christ between, between man and God. And so the, the priest, he would go in, place that incense pan in there so that the inner room would be filled with smoke. So when he came in the next time with the blood and he would face the altar and see God face to face, he had the intercessor between himself and God. That's exciting, guys, right? What a picture that is for us to understand that with, what is it? This is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh into the Father except through me. And we must have our intercessor in place. And so this particular author, I believe, is saying this intercessor, this quality of this intercessor is within the veil. And so in his mind and in the way that he described it, and by the way, he followed it up with a very profound statement, I think, which also tells us he was not trying to give us a, a detailed message of understanding about that, that tabernacle in the earthly realm, right? He was really more concerned about them following up with, with what he followed with, which was what? All that Jesus had done in the fulfillment of it. And so he says, and so about these details... 
I can't give you a lot of discussion about that right now. He, he, he says, uh, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. I'm I, this, is not my my, this is not my point. I'm just giving you the basics so I can move on and tell you what my point is. Right? Okay. Yes, isn't that cool? Yes. Um, I have seen that before, and it, it might be in my Bible program. Do you know? Do you know where you can find that visual? Do you have it somewhere? If you can make a photocopy of that and bring it in, maybe I'll see if I can scan it, and s or maybe you can scan it and send it to um, Lois. There she is in the back. <laughs> and we can maybe send it out to everyone, because that really is a very good uh, visualization of the whole concept. I mean, the, the entire tabernacle system, every article and every, every procedure, every sacrifice, every part of it, was a, there was a quality in it which explained relationship with God. And, the, and these major articles of, for making atonement and for you know, the shedding of blood, the forgiveness of sin, all that was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The, the candlestick was Jesus. The bread, the bread of life was Jesus, just as Diane brought out earlier. We looked at these verses this week. It, it, what an amazing picture. And Kay actually wanted us to spend today in great detail on this. So I'm glad we're able to, we are kind of hitting a few of these major points that might have been hiccups. But hopefully we're explaining them well enough that you're able to press forward into what his major point is, which is exactly what he says. He says, I don't want to speak about these things in detail right now. I really want you to focus on how Jesus is better than that old system. Yes. Oh, wonderful. Oh, it has a picture in there? Oh, good. My brain caught on fire. I love that. Well, you know, this is true. And one of the things with any Bible study that you find, especially as an inductive student, is one thing leads to another to another. It's like, like uh, Lisa said earlier, I want to bring up a rabbit trail. You know, you can go on a million rabbit trails. And every one of them are awesome. Sometimes you can stop. I remember... Uh, do you guys remember the Berean class? I know that they still have it here, but back when um, Bruce Hurt was leading it, and he was going through Daniel, I think they were in there five or six years because they would hit, a, they would hit an interesting point, and they would do an entire sideline study, and then they'd come back to Daniel again. So, uh-huh. Well, yes, but before that was, was Bruce Hurt. Bruce Hurt had started it because that's when I joined it was back when Bruce was teaching. And then the other guy took it up because Bruce uh, decided to go on. But, yes, it's, it's like you can never stop with inductive Bible study. There's more, always. At the time this was written, the veil was down. Right? That's exactly right. The veil was down, and this author is not a priest. So he himself had never served in the, in the inner sexual either. However... I still hold fast to the fact that this was divine inspiration writing. And therefore, every word is absolutely true and accurate. But what I, my conclusion when I did some of my own research on this was, was that um, the point here was that in the mind of the Jew, 
And, and what was commonly understood was that intercessory work pertained to the inner sanctuary because without the, without the uh, smoke of the incense in, within the veil being there, they could not even enter into that. So I really feel like that is what his point was, is that, that the intercessory work pertained to and, and was, af- was affiliated with that inner sanctuary of the Holy of Holies. And most certainly, Carrie is correct. The veil at this point had been, had been broken, had been torn, although I'm sure they quickly repaired it and put it back up, right? But because they didn't believe. <laughs> but yes, that veil had been rent, and therefore for us, there is, isn't that awesome? Where he says this, that it's now disclosed. What a contrast that is to the old. There, the inner sanctuary for us is, is disclosed, it has been opened. That veil has been rent, and we can, we can enter boldly into the throne room of God. And w- our intercessor abides with us always because he lives within us by the power of the Spirit, which is the new covenant. So the Spirit dwells within you. You have always have access to the Father, and he's never going to consume you or find fault, right? He's going to, he's going to, he's going to deal with you with mercy and grace. Very different from the old covenant. Can you imagine any Old Testament Jew just saying, excuse me, I have a question of God, and just marching into the inner holy of holies? Ha <laughs> ha, no. <laughs> that would definitely not be met well. <laughs> um, I saw a hand up back here somewhere. Where did I see it? No, okay. All right, so now let's move forward so we don't get sidetracked too much here. I want to m- make sure we get through as much as we can. Okay, so we have the tabernacle, we have the, the holy place, the holy of holies. See, one key word, and we were off on a tangent. <laughs> okay, uh, the tabernacle, we, and so then the contrast was a co- the copy, right, uh, versus the true. So there would be a, the contrast, the true or the more perfect, right? But it's also in this one, too. A mere copy is mentioned in... Um, Verse 24, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us, which tells you that, again, we have a theme that's continuing. So we know we're actually in a major segment division because the flow of thought has some qualities about it that maintain itself through the whole thing. And then at at a certain point, it'll stop and it'll move on to another theme. Okay, that's how you find and develop your segment divisions, okay, through observing what's obvious. Okay, blood, that's right. Blood comes up and it becomes very major. We're going to see it come up again also in the next chapter, aren't we? Okay, once, all right. Is that the once for all thing? Okay, now this one could be, by the way, how many of you marked all your time references? Bunches of them in these couple of chapters, right? That show the, the point that, that Lois brings up, the idea of the word once and once for all, which comes up over and over and over in various forms, right? Okay. Uh, in chapter 10, we see it again, forever, once for all, from that time onward, and anything like that. It comes up over and over. Okay. 
Okay, the Ark of the Covenant is an article within it, and it isn't. Now, when you made your list on it, how big was your list? Was it a major subject in the book? It is a major subject because your list got really big? I didn't notice that. Okay, I will put it up because it doesn't seem to me like the Ark of the Covenant, however, is his major emphasis. It's mentioned as an article, but it isn't his major focus of of addressing because, as a matter of fact, he starts out by saying in 9 about these things I don't want to really discuss. What I want to do is talk about how Jesus is the greater than. Absolutely. Are there, is there, now this is where it's like for me, what I saw back in, was it last chapter of this one where it talks about the mercy seat? To me, that was like huge, right? Until I started to make a list and went, oh, <laughs> like there's not hardly anything here on it. It's mentioned, and to me, I see it as a very powerful point, and it is a very powerful point, and it is a very, and especially when you want to do your inductive work and, and develop it further. What are your insights about it? Why is that important? And by going out, outside of the immediate text and researching that subject and taking all that information in and bringing it back to your text, it does develop your insight about things, doesn't it? But in the, in the flow of this author's thought in chapter 9, let's just try to title it at this point. What do we see is the major point in chapter 9? How is he a better than? Well, is, is the better sacrifice in chapter 9 the major emphasis, or is it in 10? What I was going to say, okay, let's start, let's start by doing, before we go to a title, I want to start right away by introducing to what, what happens in verse 1 to 5, because I think uh, uh, Celeste has hit on a, a very profound point here. What does it say in verse 1 to 5? That's your very first paragraph. He says now, right? Which tells you that he's, co- he's continuing a thought. Now, if you go back to, to 8, because that's where he started, in 8 verses 1 and 2, he talks about Jesus being where in 8 verses 1 and 2? In heaven seated where? In the, in the true tabernacle, right? In the heavenly tabernacle. So he's seated in, in the heavenly tabernacle in 8, 1 and 2. That's where he started. Then he goes into 9, 1 and he says, now. Now, the first covenant had regulations of divine worship. So what is the contrast between what happened in 8 versus what's now starting in 9? Who, what is he focusing on now here? The regulations about the, the earthly ta- about the earthly tabernacle, right? You see that in 1 to 5. So he talks about in 1 to 5, what is his major emphasis? That the first covenant had what? Okay. The first covenant um, had regulations. For the what? 
for the earthly sanctuary, or, and I'm going to use the word tabernacle to show consistency. It's, it's used synonymously, tabernacle and sanctuary. I, I guess I should put that up here, huh? Tabernacle and sanctuary are used synonymously here, right? Okay, so in verses 1 to 5, he's explaining that the first covenant had regulations for the earthly tabernacle, right? Now what happens in, ver in verses 6 to 10? Okay, now when these things have been so prepared, he's talking about the, the, the pre preparation of the tabernacle itself, the priests were continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing divine worship, but into the second only the high priest enters once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people, committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still handing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until what? A time of reformation. So in 6 to 10, he explains to us that, that about the, those priests, right? The earthly priests, what? So this earthly tabernacle, basically, first of all, let's just determine what it's not. What is, about the earthly... Uh, tabernacle it doesn't perfect anything and also it is not yet what not yet well yeah it is that's a conclusion but in the text what does it say it's not yet what in the old system they had that veil right and therefore the inner sanctuary is not yet what disclosed it's not yet open what does that tell you why is the inner sanctuary held back from the people of the, under the old law? Sin. What, and what would happen if people entered into the presence of the same reason why they had to have the incense to go in before the priest when he went in one time a year and he was only one man. And, he, and it, when you guys study that out, I know we did this in Leviticus also, but, but we did it with Hebrews the last time too, and we've done it in other books, uh, the study of covenant itself. That high priest... How difficult was it for him to prepare himself for that day of atonement? It was no easy task. That man, uh, you know, he had prayed up, prayed up, prayed up. He had washed. He had, he had special clothing. He had, I mean, every, to the very last second before he walked in, he had made sure everything in his life had been atoned for, that he would be as, as much as is possible he had confessed, he had, he had, very interesting to me though, the day of atonement was for what kind of sin? Those committed in ignorance, unintentional sin, very interesting, which tells you then what about the intentional sin? With what? Well, okay, and there's a special offering what is, that takes care of deliberate sin, 
what must, how do, do you guys remember about that? What, what happens with that, that particular? Okay, and what offering was that one called? It was called the guilt offering or the trespass offering. So there was an offering for, for sin, deliberate sin, but it had to be preceded by two important things. Number one, confession. And then secondarily, restitution. If you had committed sin that needed to be taken, that, that could be taken care of, if there was any way for you to make restoration, you were to do so. First you must confess it, then you make restitution. Then you could go with a guilt offering to make a guilt offering. But the Day of Atonement, was it for that? No. It was for the unintentional one. So this, pat, this priest who had made his confessions and had made his restitutions, had washed, had, had cleansed, had sprinkled, had dressed properly, had prayed himself up, all these things that could possibly be done had been done. Were there still unintentional things that maybe he wasn't even aware of? Yeah, yeah that made him just as guilty and full of sin? Yes, that would make him be consumed if he entered into the presence of God without the, without the covering. So they needed that incense to go in before him to be his covering. And then he went in with the blood and sprinkled. I mean, what about a beautiful picture? What does that tell you then about confession of sin and how, how we approach God, Old Testament and New? Uh, is it different? It really is not. Before you enter into covenant with God, what comes first? Repentance and confession of sin. And if, and if you have a true heart, a true attitude, you, you really should make restoration as well, although God is not that legalistic as, as the old law was. But the idea is that, that in the new, it's the same as in the old. You approach God first and foremost to enter into covenant with him. You do so by confession of sin and repentance, turning from that sin. And that was required in the Old Testament and in the new. Isn't that interesting? I, I had never really looked at it that carefully until this week, and I went, oh, my goodness. Well, what did they do about the intentional ones like David? Do you remember David when he committed sin? And yet God called him what? A man after God's, a man after God's own heart. And so the interesting thing was God says about himself he is, he is humble of heart and contrite. And I thought that was interesting. David is a man after God's own heart. who, who was, He was humble and contrite. And who is the one that God honors and, the, and, the God, and that God loves is the man who has a humble heart and is contrite in spirit. I love it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> But that was a contrite heart in that moment, wasn't it? A, a humble and contrite heart that said, God, I'm bowing to you. Very interesting. That's a... Right, right. And now that you know in the new covenant, he doesn't deal with you according to your faults. And because when you do fail, he doesn't say, I'm, I, you know, I have nothing to do with you or I'm not going to care for you. Instead, he deals with you in mercy and grace. 
I love that. That means that you and I have that op- very good insight on that and, and good, good drawing of a conclusion. It's really interesting the way that inductive Bible study works itself, though. It is a precept upon a precept upon a precept upon a precept. And sometimes, you know, you, you may feel like you're still kind of lost in some of the things that you are learning. You're not totally sure you get it all. But every single day that you spend doing inductive Bible study processes, you learn a little bit more and a little bit more. And a little, pretty soon you start linking up the pieces. And as long as you hold fast to doctrines and not to an individual storyline, but rather doctrines hold you, you'll be able to take your storylines and start pulling them all together, all start relating to one another. Everything's going to start making sense. And you can link things. You can go say, oh, look at what here it says in Hebrews. That's just like what was in Romans. That's just like what happened back in Hebrews or back with the story of David or back with the story of Samuel. I mean, you can start linking things because you hold to your doctrines that you're building on. That's the exciting part about doing it this way. It sure does. That's exactly right. See, good point. In in First Corinthians 11, when you go before the Lord, you are supposed to go and make it right with your fellow man, if possible, before you take up the Lord's Supper. If you are made aware of it, if the Holy Spirit convicts you, and you become aware of it, or if at some point you finally just make a confession, yeah, I didn't, I shouldn't have spoke that way to that person, or I shouldn't have treated someone in that way, or whatever, whatever the sin was. Once you realize you've committed sin, you are to. Now, this is really interesting. First John covers this. First John has a section in there where it talks about, and, and it happened also with the washing of the feet of the disciples. When, remember when Jesus came in and he wanted to wash their feet, and Peter says, no, 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 don't wash my feet. And he says, look, if, you, if I don't wash your feet, I, you have no part in me. And he says, oh, well, then do my whole body, Lord. He says, no, if you've already had a bath, all you need is the feet washed. What is the picture in that? Well, first John talks about the word of Jesus, uh, of um, if you confess your sin, uh, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That particular passage is not speaking about the cleansing of forgiveness of sins for justification. That passage is talking about sanctification and the daily cleansing that comes. And that word is the word splash. And it's the same concept as washing of the feet. And he's saying, in your faith walk with God, God says you are to still come to him and confess, and you are to make things right when you can. And in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, if you have anything against your brother, go and make it right. Then come back to the Lord's table. Why? Because you... When you have sin in your life, it, it, there's a break in fellowship with God. It does not mean he abandons you. It does not mean you are unsaved. It does not mean you lose your salvation. It means that God is, is dealing with you as a son does. And we're going to get into this a little bit later in Hebrews where he says he disciplines his children. The goal for God in your life is sanctification, that you become more and more like Jesus, that you walk in a way which is holy and, and honorable to him. And to do this, there is a daily washing that's necessary. And if you are a real good um, observer of, of desiring to, to walk with God, if you're really sensitive to walking by the Spirit and not by your flesh, as it says in Galatians, then what you do is daily you go to the Lord and you ask for forgiveness for anything that you're aware of. And you understand that the atonement of God has taken care of sins, pre- past, present, and future. 
but that there's an awareness in your spirit because of God writing it on your heart by the spirit, his law is now written on your heart. You're now aware of right and wrong and that Holy Spirit will convict you so that you try to make, make things right and, and be right before God. I love that. Mm -hmm. Fellowship, that's right. That's exactly right. The whole book of 1 John is about the believer. He, he, he says, these things have I written that you may know that you have eternal life, right? He's, he's so that you understand how you can identify a true believer and the qualities of a true believer that should be present in your life. And so he's just saying, these are things that you can look for in your life. And if you see these things present, these are the confirmation that give you confidence as a believer, as you're walking in it. But that one is written specifically to believers. It's not a book for salvation. It's a book for the, the, uh, the sanctification of God in your life. It's sanctification, not justification. I love it. Okay, we've really gotten off on things. We've got to keep moving. Okay, the earthly tabernacle. Okay, in, in back to chapter 9, we see the earthly tabernacle is not yet disclosed. That was where I was heading on that one. It's not yet disclosed. That's part of it because the sacrifice is what? What do those sacrifices not do that, th that it's not disclosed? Do not make the worshiper perfect. So, because with sacrifices that do not make the worshiper Perfect. Okay, now comes the point where we're going to see what the major subject going on here is going to be about. Yeah, the earthly tabernacle is not yet disclosed, and, and it's because it is with sacrifices that do not make the worshiper perfect. I don't know how you want to phrase it, but just do it in a way that makes sense to you, okay? I put those priests into a holy place not yet disclosed with sacrifices that do not make the worshiper perfect in conscience. That's how I put it on my chart. No, they cannot make the worshiper perfect. Okay, that's a good way, too. That's perfect. Uh, the, the, reason, the, the, the reason I wanted to put on there that it's not yet disclosed is because that's the major contrast that's going to go on now. When you go to the next section, starting in 11, Verses 11 to 14 is our ne next paragraph. We see Christ doing what? He's entering into the perfect heavenly tabernacle, right? And when he does that, what does he do? Oh, it's once for all, and he cleanses us, right? And when, when he does that, what does he cleanse us from? All our sins and from, how does it say? Dead works. Now, what is the dead works directly speaking of here in the context of this book what are the dead works the works of the law you could put a law right over the top of that by if you want to mark that particular verse in that way i just put a, my little stone tablets over it and marked it but the the dead works is speaking about the law so in this one in 11 to 14 now we have a contrast then about the first covenant but now in the second covenant we have uh, christ he entered the perfect ca a tabernacle, right? 
and um, mm-hmm. and he cleansed your conscience from dead works. All right, so what I'm wanting you to, to see at this point is the major subject in here is about what? Are you seeing it at this point? That although blood is brought up and it does become a major subject, the major point on the blood and that sacrifice is really covered in chapter 10. This chapter is still talking about that tabernacle. Jesus is, it has a ministry, more, a more excellent ministry of a better covenant is handled in, in chapter 8. But when you get into chapter 9, what is he talking about? He's contrasting what? The old regulations and the other in the old tabernacle, and he's contrasting it with Jesus entering into what? A better tabernacle, right? Of a better covenant. So he, he is, it, it is a more perfect tabernacle of a better covenant. The other one had a tabernacle of its covenant. Now we, he, we have a better tabernacle of a better covenant. What is, that is what's going on in this particular chapter. So I'm going to put that up here. Um, a more perfect tabernacle of a better covenant. Now you can title that in any way. If you have any other subjects you want to add in there, if you, if you really uh, want to add in the blood uh, subject in that, you can do that. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But you're going to see, I think, when we hit 10, the blood and the sacrifices becomes the major subject in chapter 10. In chapter 9, it's about the, the more perfect tabernacle. And he gives us all these uh, instructions about the first covenant had an earthly tabernacle. And it was, um, that's in 1 to 5, in 6 to 10, the earthly tabernacle is not yet disclosed because it has sacrifices that do not make the worshiper perfect. Okay, and yeah, you could put that because in there. Because it, it, it has sacrifices that don't make them perfect. That was about the first one. So then the contrast is, but Jesus has entered the perfect tabernacle, and he has cleansed your conscience from dead works. So that tells you that what he, his sacrifice that he makes in this new, in this b more perfect tabernacle is that which does make the, the uh, worshiper perfect, right? It has cleansed their conscience from those old dead works. So that old one is now obsolete. So what does he say in 15 to 22? Now comes in more heavily the subject of blood. You can really see it pick up. There's, there's only blood mentioned once in the first half of this chapter, right? The first um, 11 verses, it's only mentioned once. Starting in 12, you see blood picked up pretty heavily in verse 12 and 13. Then it doesn't get brought up again until verse uh, 18, right? Then 18 to the end. But then when you move into 10, you see that the, bl the, the blood gets... The blood gets brought up in 9. You could almost could add another chapter in here <laughs> if you really wanted to, but they didn't, so we're not going to do that. But the blood gets brought up in, in 9, but then it, it's linked to the idea of sacrifice in 10. 
right? I, I was really focusing on the blood from um, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that all. That all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. But if you go to 24, you can apply the shedding of blood for forgiveness. So there's a great contrast, right? The idea. So absolutely. So the blood. Okay. So he entered the more perfect tabernacle, cleansed your conscience from dead works. Uh, his blood is a more perfect. Okay. Give me a verse that I can add into this title, if you want to add in the blood here. Uh, say it again, Don. Yeah, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That's a good verse. Yeah. See, and that's the verse I picked up on too, but I just eliminated the blood quality. And, and although we can do that, um, his blood, how about we put this? Christ entered the perfect tabernacle with his blood. How about that? There you go. With his blood and cleansed your conscience from dead works. Does that, does that yeah. fill it up better? Okay, good. All right, I like it too. That's exactly. So there's that contrast. True. Absolutely. And you know, in all my contrasts, I said he can, it cannot make, the, that blood cannot make you perfect, but his blood cleanses your conscience. The blood of calves and goats and cleanses with a better sacrifice. Okay, so absolutely I do see that. Um, all right, so we're going to add that in, that it's with his blood that has cleansed your conscience from dead works. All right? But it's still the emphasis is on where he entered with that blood. The blood is a subject, but the major subject is about the tabernacle in which he entered, okay, being a better tabernacle that he entered into. Okay, so now for if the blood of the goats and, he and heifers had, uh, had those who had been defiled sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ? So there's your contrast in, in verse 13 and 14. Now he gives a for this reason, right? Do you see how he brings back up then what subject? In verse 15, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So he brings you back again to his major subject about the covenant again. Do you see that? Anytime there's a therefore, you say, what's the therefore, therefore, right? And it helps you to, to refocus because what happens, especially in a book like this, actually there's, they're almost all this way, but in this particular book what we're seeing is there's so much detail about the two systems, right? the old versus the new, and there's all these points that are in almost every one of them, like the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant and the blood, and, the, and they're all major, and you can get so lost in all of them that you, that you lose the focus. And so when you see him try to bring you back, back to his focus of point, he says, for this reason. It's just like at the beginning of uh, 9 where he gives you a bunch of details in 1 to 5 about that earthly uh, tabernacle, but he says, but about these things we cannot speak. He's, he's saying, but now let me just tell you, that's not my point. 
right? And then he takes you in verse 6, he says, now, and therefore, I want you to see now, this is what my point is. And then he goes on and explains it. Are you catching these little, there's like little trigger words that are written within the text, these words that help you to refocus your attention. If you're paying attention and if you've marked them, I like to mark every one of my for and therefores, words like now or for this reason. All those should be highlighted in some special way so that you catch them because they are trying to help you focus. Okay? All right, so for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So although he mentioned the blood, um, he, the, he's, he's saying, but for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Because his blood is better, he's the mediator of a new covenant. He inaugurated with his own blood. Um, because he talks about um, the, uh, the word death comes up in there too, doesn't it? In verse 15, 16, 17, talking about death and dead. Uh, there's the requirement of something that dies. And in this case, what was it that died for the new covenant that's better than the old? And the contrast was that in the old covenant, what died and what sprinkled their altars? The goats and, and the bulls. and Right. So the, the animal blood then is not even a comparison to what's going on in the new is what he's saying. So he brings you back. He says he's a mediator of a better one. He said, but since there was the necessity of there had to be a death in order for the shed, there had to be shedding of blood to inaugurate it in verse 18, right? But the first, go ahead. That's true. That's right. You're actually correct, and that goes back to, uh, we're going to get there, I, th I think. I think she's going to, I hope she's going to take us there. There's, there's teaching in, uh, is it Galatians, that t takes you in and gives you, talks about how you get released, and I think it might also be in Romans, how you get released from a covenant. The, co the only way to be released from a covenant is by the death of someone. Okay, Romans 7 does it, but I think, anyway, yes. So if she, hopefully she'll take us there and it's a whole, thank you, Lisa, for a whole nother subject. <laughs> That's two today, Gary. You know, three and you're out. <laughs> I'm only kidding. <laughs> okay, so, uh, and yes, she's correct. I just didn't want to go there today. Okay, all right, so, um, what is he telling us then in 15? Starting there in verse 18, he gives us a therefore. Therefore, what? Because this is his major point about what he's saying in 15 to 22. Mm -hmm. The first covenant was inaugurated with what? Blood of what kind of blood? Okay. Okay, so the first covenant was inaugurated with blood of animals. And it actually says calves and goats. I'm just going to put animals to make it a short, shorter <laughs> in 15 to 22. Then he goes in 23 to 28 to show us how the new one is better and how is it better. Well, if you're going to follow the flow of thought about the inauguration of it, what, how is the new one been inaugurated? Okay. You're welcome. The blood of Christ. So now, can, 
so the new covenant was inaugurated with a better sacrifice, right? And it, and it was of Christ himself. So again, we come back to this, the major subject as he closes this out. So he starts about, he starts talking about the first co covenant and its tabernacle and the earthly tabernacle. And he talks, he goes, but Christ entered the more perfect tabernacle with blood that was, uh, that cleansed you from your conscience. The first covenant was inaugurated with blood of the animals and the new covenant was inaugurated with Christ's blood. With a better sacrifice, is how it says. Back to our better than theme. Whew. Okay. I mean, that's a bunch. I know, it's hard to do this, but I tell you, when you're doing this at home on your own, it is hard sometimes to stay focused. Now, what, what's going to be helpful, I think, when we're done with this, we're going to get through Chapter 10 next. We only have 15 minutes. It's going to be tough. But we can, we're going to attempt it. The good thing is going to be this. Then you're going to have something to kind of start with. You go home and you clean it up to say exactly what you see, okay? You do not have, uh, I, I want to be sure that you understand this. My titles are not sacred titles. Okay, you go home and you reason it through. Hopefully this will give you a guide, though, that kind of helps you see what you're supposed to be looking for. And I'm hoping that today I'm pointing out to you those trigger words and the processes by which you, you go to try to find your titles that are objective and not emotionally connected. Often what happens for all of us, and, and I'm guilty of this too, but we kind of have our own little pet subjects that we love you know if you're an evangelist if you're a prayer warrior if you're a uh, you know a, a servant whatever it is you tend to kind of focus on those things which um, strengthen you in that particular area that or that kind of give you that attaboy and go get them kind of an attitude depending on your spiritual gifting right so with the inductive Bible study process, if you continually remind yourself of the rules and the steps that you're supposed to be taking, then it's going to help you to better hone in and be precise. And it's going to weed out some of the things that are, although they're great subjects and they're in there, and there's, there's no de denying that they are fabulous and very, very important subjects, they may not be the major point in the flow of thought at this point. At, in this particular author's purpose, right? So you're looking at your book theme, you're relating each chapter to the book theme, and then with each paragraph, the paragraphs go to your chapter title and they have to relate. How does your, each of your paragraphs support your major, your major theme in that chapter? Okay, so that's kind of the checks and balances on that. Okay, so we're done with chapter nine, let's move on to chapter 10 and let's try to do the same thing. Uh, key words, covenant and high priest again come up. In this chapter, what do we see? Sacrifice. Okay. And sin. Big one on sin too, huh? Okay. Oh, I missed that one. Sanctify. Okay, yes, I did mark it. Sanctified and made perfect 
And I linked it to the word forgiveness in eight, but although it's a, it's a stretch, but for me, I saw that in verse 10, it says, by this will we have been sanctified. And then for, in verse 14, by one offering he has perfected. Well, perfected is sanctified, right? And then in verse 18, the word now, again, it's a, it's a conclusion statement, right? Now, for this reason, however you want to see it. So mark it. Now, he says, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any covering for sin, or no, uh, offering for sin. I'm sorry, I said it wrong. There's no offering for sin, meaning no need for offering, right? Because if it's forgiven, why do you need to keep offering? That's exactly right. And in the last chapter, we learned that when he entered into the perfect tabernacle of his blood, what did it do? It cleanses us. And now what we know is that that, that tabernacle that had in the earthly one that had not yet been disclosed, that Holy of Holies had not been disclosed, for us in the new covenant, is it disclosed? Can, do, can we boldly enter into the Holy of Holies where God is seated a, a, on his throne? Can we approach his throne with confidence? Without fear, yes. I love this. There, and now what's cool is once you've kind of established these thoughts, go back and read through Hebrews again. And look how often this author over and over says, you have boldness to enter in. That you have the confidence to, to approach his throne. That, that, that your faith in Christ is an anchor for your soul. Right? And so there's no, no longer any fear of entering into that presence of God. Well, if you compare that with what they had under the old, it is a stark contrast. Okay? All right. So uh, sacrifice, sin. Um, all right. So, and covenant, of course, and high priest. So now let's start looking at our verses. One to four. Since we see sacrifices seems to be uh, a lot in here. Uh, what else is, would you say is the m most major in 10? Okay. Sacrifices of the law, and they had to be done year by year because why? It could never make perfect those who draw near to God, right? All right, so one to four sacrifices of the law could never make perfect Gee, you would think that it maybe that's his whole point right and and really in this particular book once you catch on to the fact that this is his major point he is trying to convince them that the way to God is so much better in the new that there is no need for them to go back. And, and for them it was hard because they had an, a system that was so ingrained in their every single day life and they were so used to going through the priest. And, you know, we, we have situations today where people cannot seem to approach God without a priest. They don't understand that Jesus is their great high priest. There's no need for an earthly priest because you have a great high priest. And that great high priest has now opened and disclosed the Holy of Holies for you that you walk immediately into the presence of God. You have no need for that mediator. Your mediator is Jesus Christ. I love that. That is an important point. So it could never make perfect those who draw near. 
All right, so that's one to four. Look at five to ten now and tell me what we see there. We have a contrast, right? One to four is contrasting. So I'm going to put it this way, contrasting. In five to ten, what do we see? Okay, whatever. How, you can divide it wherever you want to, Margaret. That's fine. I see a therefore at the, verse, at the beginning of five, so that's why I ended at four. So in five, he says, therefore. Okay, I have come to do your will. And what was the will of God? That Jesus be the sacrifice, not what? What is the, com what is the comparison? The first covenant, they had a sacrifice, but it was sacrifice of animals, and that animal blood did not do what? It did not, did, it didn't, as a matter of fact, he says, I didn't even desire those, right? God said that, yet God instituted them, right? But he says, I didn't desire those. They were there for another purpose, right? He was painting us a, yes. Have you ever heard of, um, was it Jeff Foxworthy? Here's your sign. <laughs> yeah, well, this is what God is saying. Israel, here's your sign. And I'm telling you, I never desired that. But, but he says, therefore, what you bring up is a good point. But the point to the fact that, that he says, at 9.10, but this is his will, that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There is your, by this will, he tells us exactly what he wants. So Jesus is offering of his own body, I added that in to, because I think it's important, sanctified. He sanctified us once for all. And that once for all gets repeated and repeated and repeated in this particular chapter. Now, I separated verse 11 from the rest of, uh, which is 12 to 18. And the reason I did is because I see a contrast. He makes a statement in 11 and then he contrasts it with, with 12 to, to 18. So I, I went ahead and made it my own paragraph title for just that one verse, which is unusual, I know, but because I wanted to see the, the comparison, the old versus the new, the old versus the new, so I stayed with that pattern in this particular chapter. What do we see in 11? What does every priest do? Okay, he stands daily. Um... Offering, okay. Offering sacrifices, which. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> Never take away sin. Some of these titles are almost the, uh, it's almost the whole thing, but that's just. Now, 12 to 18, therefore, the contrast is what Jesus, what did Jesus do? He offered what? One sacrifice. And you could put in parentheses of himself. And you know how I sometimes rectify this instead of adding in more words? I just put one sacrifice and I add a cross on top of it. Then I know what that one sacrifice was of himself. Um, and sat, sat down 
That's a contrast also to these that stand daily. He sat down, right, at the right hand of God. And therefore it says there is no longer any offering for sin. You could add that in too if you wanted to. No longer. And if you want, put in parentheses, no longer a need for offering for sin because it's done it's been done once for all no longer any offering for sin is how it, he says it but what he what the implication there is that there's no longer a need for it because it's been taken care of once for all now I was going to take us all the way to the end but I can see we're out of time so it wasn't in your homework to do 19 through, through 39 this week we stopped at verse 18 we actually accomplished the entire lesson I can't believe it we did it I, I would, was skeptical that we'd get through it all and we actually even covered some of the stuff on the tabernacle so we did very well this morning I think we got through a lot do you have any questions um oh yeah chapter 10 how do we title it a better sacrifice of a better covenant right a better sacrifice of a better covenant. So again, our major subject in this, in this particular segment is the covenant. And each time, the first one, he has a more excellent ministry of it. He has a, a this, the, in chapter 9, it's a more perfect tabernacle for this covenant. And in chapter 10, it's a better sacrifice of a better covenant. So we did 8, 9, and 10 today. Yay. <laughs> Good job. Any other questions? All right. I'm